accomplishing two things, and that is on Saturday, September the 26th, I we will not be gathered here like we are now. I'm going to be doing a, a step two workshop where we're going to talk about the history of step two. We're going to be talking about some of the common mistakes that are made by the sponsors and the sponsees relative to step two. And we're going to be talking about step two in depth. And that's going to be followed with a question and answer period uh, that is going to be out of, it's going to be out of Los Angeles. I'm still going to be here in Scottsdale, but that's Saturday, September 26th. I do not have passcodes. They're very worried about um, the last time that John Kay did one, there was an intruder, an electronic intruder, and they came in with all kinds of porno stuff, and it was quite disturbing to many, and we want to avoid that. But it's going to be Saturday, the 26th of September, from 1 p.m. Pacific time to 2 o'clock Pacific time, and then from 2 to 2.30, we're going to do uh, questions and answers, and it must be consistent with step number two. I also want to mention something here that is quite sad uh, for all of us, whether you knew him or you did not, a giant of recovery is no longer with us. Clancy Immisland on the 24th of August passed away. He was in his 90s. And you'll hear me talk about that when we walk in here, we walk in here on the shoulders of giants. And one of those big giants, one of those wonderful, wonderful giants was Clancy Immisland. Clancy was a person who helped OA get off the ground. He was a frequent speaker at early, early OA meetings. Roseanne saw that he had a lot of knowledge and, and, and they were a bunch of housewives who really had, none of them had ever been through recovery. None of them had ever been through any of this. And so she leaned, he was one of the people that she leaned on uh, and he spoke many times. I had an opportunity to speak to him at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club twice when he came here to speak. And whenever you hear me talk about uh, the fact that food is not the problem, it's the solution to the problem, I was originally taught that by Clancy in an empty room at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. And he explained to me how for him alcohol was not the problem, but yet it was the solution to the problem. And he explained that to me in such a way that just made perfect sense. And Clancy was a giant of recovery. Uh, there will be some information on some uh, different things to uh, zoom into if you care to. Um, so anyway, um, that. But one other little warning about the 26th of September. They do not want to see any Facebook or internet postings on this event. And the reason is, is because the last time when they publicized John's on relapse, they had an electronic intruder. And as such, they do not want any of that. Now, and 
they're willing to, to deal with the fact that that is going to mean we're going to have less people, but they're okay with that. They just don't want any electronic publicity. Uh, my suggestion was, why don't we charge $10 or $5 or whatever it is, and that will make keep the intruders away. But the Los Angeles intergroup is in charge of it, and uh, I'm very dear friends with the chair of the Los Angeles intergroup, but as a group, they, the group conscience goes beyond the one person. So for right now, we're not going to publicize it at all. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Okay, we've taken care of that. I'm going to be mentioning again the 26th as we move forward. But Clancy Emmisland was something I also wanted to throw out there to you guys because he was such a giant of recovery. And he is all over uh, the internet. You can listen to him and, and stuff like that. He's very funny and he's very, very informative. Chuck C was his sponsor and Clancy is really the last of the members of AA who had a very personal and somewhat close relationship with Bill Wilson. Now that Clancy is no longer with us, you don't really have a lot of people that have that personal connection because Bill has been gone now for uh, 50 years. He's gone now since 1971, January 24th of 71, which is a long time ago at, uh, when I was a junior in high school. Okay, we have been in the chapter more about alcoholism. And the chapter more about alcoholism is about step one. And it's the last of the chapters that is about step number one. More about alcoholism is something that describes for us the three characteristics of the disease. Now, the traits of the disease are a physical allergy and a twist of the mind. And the twist of the mind has its sidekick. And the sidekick to the twist of the mind is the built-in forgetter that we refer to as the mental blank spot. And that mental blank spot is what um, prohibits me from conjuring up the memory of a day, a week, a month ago, a year ago, whatever, of what the food did to me. And I can only laser focus on what the food is going to do for me rather than to me. And so as a mind, I have a mind that is different from other people. My mind works differently when I'm scared, when I'm bored, when I'm angry, when people are not sticking to my script, when they are sticking to my script, whatever that may be, my mind is a mind that is going to go to the food as a solution to the problem. And my mind is different from 90% of the people. And the idea that somehow, someday, I will be able to eat like another, a, a normal person has to be smashed. And the reason, again, is because I have a twist of the mind, which drives me into the food and eradicates any memory I have of consequence to that eating. And I have a body that ensures that once I ingest certain foods, primarily for me, fried foods, sugar, flour, those are the things, fat, a lot, lot of fat, those are the things that are going to catapult me 
into a situation where I will not be able to control the amount I eat once I've started. So if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I am powerless over food. And those are the things that make me a compulsive overeater. But in this chapter, we're going to also look at three things that have never heretofore been considered. Dr. Silkworth and, and Bill Wilson, and there is a solution. They're beautiful, sound chapters. But what we're going to do is we're going to look very carefully at the work of Peabody, Richard Peabody, who in 1930 wrote a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. And he died of his own alcoholism in 1936, just a couple of years, three years before April 10th, 1939, when the big book was actually published. But he gave us, he bequeathed us three things to remember. And if we forget them, we're going to die because we, we really need this information. Now, you're going to hear me say this a lot. You will not get this information by absorbing it. You will get this information by transmitting it. You do not get spiritual information by hearing it or absorbing it. You get it by transmitting it to others. And that throws us into constant work with others. What are those three characteristics? What are those three things? Well, the first thing is that this disease is permanent. There is no cure for this disease. I have a friend, he lives in New York City, and he answered beautifully two weeks ago. Somebody asked a question on the second uh, hour of vision, and he was, he was kidding around with the with the moderator and, and all that. But he answered the question really beautifully when he says, there's no cure for this. I'm recovered, but I'm not cured. And uh, there's no cure for this. We can be recovered, but we will never be cured. The disease is permanent. Now, here is something else we, we get out of this chapter. And we see it illustrated in the stories. We see it illustrated in the Jaywalker. We see it illustrated in Fred. We see it illustrated all over this chapter. The disease is progressive. What does that mean, progressive? That means that as I age, the disease gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And that is something that we need to remember. How do we remember that? Not by absorbing it, but by transmitting it. And you hear me repeat that a lot because I know that we have built-in forgetters. Now, the disease is progressive. So what that also means is this is something where people are going to relapse if they don't really give this the credibility that it deserves. How do they relapse? Here's what happens. We settle in to a level of activity. We're sponsoring three people. We're sponsoring no people. We're sponsoring 82,000 people. Whatever that may be for you. Whatever that may be for you. And you're taking X amount of outreach calls, but you're not increasing your spiritual life. You're failing to enlarge your spiritual life. And the book is very clear. For if an alcoholic failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he will drink again 
And if for us to drink is to die, then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. That's the bottom of 14, top of 15 in Bill's story. And this is where a lot of people don't realize that the amount of accountability in OA is higher than the level of accountability in any 12-step program that I have been around in the 41 years that I have been a part of OA. I've never been a real member of AA, but I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years, and they don't have OA there. There's no such thing. At least they didn't when I lived there. Maybe I've been gone now uh, you know, 18 years. I don't know. But when I lived in Eugene, Oregon, they didn't have OA there. So I had to go to AA. And what I saw, and I'm not being critical here, I'm just observing. What I saw were people that were able to stay sober on meetings and minimal work alone. They were able to go to meetings and for whatever reason, they they stayed as dry drunks, a lot of them. Dry drunk is not somebody you really want to be around. It's very tough. But here you won't see a lot of dry drunks. What is a dry drunk? A person who is abstinent from eating, abstinent from food behaviors, and they're not really having a spiritual awakening yet. That's not going to fly here. So remember that the disease is permanent. The disease is progressive and the disease is fatal. Let's touch back one more time on the progressive nature of the illness because the fatal nature of the illness is illustrated beautifully in a man of 30. He picked up his carpet slippers and a bottle and within four years, he was dead. But let's just touch on something very important on the progressive nature of this disease. Every day that I wake up, if I'm lucky enough to wake up, before I do my 11th step, before I go to the bathroom, before I dial into vision, I must remember three things. Number one, I got older. And that means that my digestive system, my body, my heart, my lungs, my skeletal system, my, my, ortho, my, my, my body, is less able to fend off the effects of morbid obesity, of high blood sugar, or of whatever it is. I am less able, because as I age, I start to weaken and weaken and weaken. I'm 66 years old. I wish I could tell you that I'm as strong today as I was 20, 30 years ago, it would be a lie. I am not that strong. I cannot do the things that I did years ago. It's just not in the cards. There's two other things that happened during the night. My disease got worse, whether I'm in recovery or not. So don't think that because you're in recovery that your disease isn't getting worse. You know the old adage, and it's so true. While we're here in this meeting, there's 111 of us here this morning. While we're here listening to me talk about the big book, your disease is at karate lessons and it's at the gym and it's running and it's doing push-ups and pull-ups. Your disease is getting worse and worse and worse. So what does that mean to us? We have to do more and more and more. What do you, when, when we say we have to do more and more and more, I'm specifically referring to sponsorship. 
service for my friend emphasized the necessity of working with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and so, and, and so it was true. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through service, through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed with us. It is just like that. Now, I said to you that every day I wake up, my I'm getting older. I also told you that my disease is getting worse. And what's the third thing? Things are changing. Things are changing. If I showed you what my life looked like seven months ago, if I showed you what my life looked like two years ago, if I showed you what my life was like 10 years ago, you would see dramatic and drastic changes in my life. And as those changes roll down the stream toward me, I must have a stronger and stronger attachment to my higher power. These are the things that we must transmit to others because if we forget them, if we forget these things, we will settle into a level of service that may be okay today. It may be okay tomorrow, but at some point, that level of service is going to be inadequate to fend off the temptation to use food as a solution to your problem. It is fact. It is bedrock fact that what I'm saying is true. And if it wasn't true, they wouldn't have over and over again the real perp. My real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. They wouldn't have in their warnings all through the book about my dedication to serving others. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Now, can I be of maximum service to God while I'm gorging myself with food? No, no, I cannot, no. So let's go now to page 41 and let's see where we are. We have been talking about uh, Fred and Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. We also talked about the fact that the real person behind this was Harry Brick. And Harry was a CPA. And his story appears in the very first edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the name of the story is A Different Slant. Now, why is Harry's story so important? See, a lot of us, we get this idea of an alcoholic as a guy, he's in a trench coat and it's always a man that we envision for whatever reason, I don't know. But he's in a trench coat and he's dirty and he's got this old beard that's real scraggly and stuff and he's drunk and he's just Ugh, yucky poo poo. Well, Harry or, or Fred, if you will, he is a CPA and he's very, very successful. He has a great life. Everything's coming up roses. Everything's going good. You see, 
we all have the physical allergy, we all have the twist of the mind, but we don't all come from the same direction. We don't all come from the same direction. Some of us come from Yale. Some of us come from jail. Some of us come from Park Avenue. Some of us come from a park bench. But we all have these things in common, the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. And this is what sets us apart from the normal eater. And while I'm on the subject, I also wanna remind you that not everybody gets to be three, four, five, seven hundred pounds. There are people here who have never been more than, say, X amount of pounds overweight in their life. Do they belong here? Yes, if they have the allergy and the twist of the mind. Yeah, they do. And there are people here. I have a friend, and you've heard me mention these people before. I have a friend of mine who lives in Northern California around the Bay Area. And if you looked at her, she would not present to you as a, as a, as a prototypical compulsive overeater. She's, she's very normal weight, very normal. You, you wouldn't know it. She doesn't present that way. She looks like a movie star. And when you see her, you would think to yourself, now, what is she doing here? Well, she's anorexic and she's bulimic and they are here too, because they get that same effect that I get from, say, milk duds. They get that same effect, sense of ease and comfort, by starving themselves. She also gets an effect from bulimia. She also got a lot of effect, and it did a lot of damage to her, from some of these artificial sweeteners. Now, I'm not making a comment on artificial sweeteners. That's not my purpose here. I'm just telling you about me. They don't work for me, and they don't work for her, and I have her permission to share that with you, and that's okay. They may work for you, and if they do, God bless you. I, I, I'm not here to judge. But she's a dumpster diving, back alley, garbage gutter compulsive overeater and if she was down face down in the in the dumpster all you'd see are feet and shoes wiggling around because that's the depth of her disease i also have a friend of mine that lives in another very mountainous state same situation if you saw her you would never know in a million years that she was a compulsive overeater but she has a uh, a bulimia. She has a form of bulimia. She is an exercise bulimic. There's three forms of bulimia primarily. There's vomiting bulimia, regurgitation, and then there's exercise bulimia, and then the, the third form of bulimia is laxative abuse. There is a form of bulimia. There is a type of bulimic who will consume very large amounts of food and then they will abuse laxatives and they do amazing damage to their digestive system by abusing these laxatives. Do they belong in a way? You bet they do. They are compulsive overeaters to the max and they may not present the way we present, they may not look the way we look, but they are absolutely compulsive overeaters, just like anybody who has been morbidly obese. Now let's go to the bottom of page 41, and we're gonna pick up where we were last week in the chapter, more about alcoholism, and so important, 
was Peabody's The Common Sense of Drinking that Bill Wilson's copy of The Common Sense of Drinking is in the AA archives as we sit here, as we speak. Very, very important. The AA archives is in New York City. Uh, it's in Manhattan and, and, and uh, it is just an amazing, amazing, mind-blowing, you know, situation. Okay. As soon as I regained my ability to think, again, I'm on page 41 at the bottom. I, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I made no fight whatever against the first drink. Now, why did he make no fight whatever against the first drink? This is a guy that has been through the ringer when it came to drinking. They told him what they knew of alcoholism, which was step one, that it is an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. They told him what they knew of a solution, which was step two, and he still drank. Now, how does that happen? That is the direct result of the mental twist telling him that it was okay to drink because he had had an extended period of sobriety. Again, Losing weight, going to meetings, is not a defense against this disease. You can lose an incredible amount of weight, and most of you have. I could pick, I don't know all of you, you know, as well as I know some of you, but there are people, and I don't have the time to really scroll through here, I'm going to assume that there are some of you that I know for a fact lost a lot of weight. But that didn't make your disease go away. That didn't give you the entitlement of using food as a solution. One of the things I just get disturbed when I hear sometimes is, I'm doing 90 and 90. That's great. What do you do on day 93? What do you do on page, on, not page, on day 161? You know, where does your program go from there, I guess, is the question. Hold on. Okay. So he had made no fight, whatever. Now, aiding and abetting his demise was the mental blank spot, that built-in forgetter that would not allow him to conjure up the memory of what liquor was doing to him. He could only think of what the liquor was doing for him. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. And how many of us have popped that cake in our mouth, have popped that pie in our mouth, and we've got it all justified. It's a wedding, it's a bar mitzvah, it's a funeral, it's a christening, it's a whatever it is, it's, it's a day that ends in a Y. And so here we are eating food that we know is killing us, and yet we're doing it anyway. And if you look at compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, drug addicts, they're, they're hand wavers. Ah, screw it. Ah, screw it. They're hand wavers. I'm glad we're on Zoom rather than on the phone because you can see my hand waving. We wave that hand, whether there's people around or not, we wave that hand, and then the next thing, that same hand brings the food to the mouth, and we're off to the races again. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. Now, what caused Fred to take the first drink, the mental twist? What caused Fred 
to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale, the physical allergy. That once that first drink was inside of him, the allergy took over, making it impossible for him to stop once he had started. Now, one of the things that the book does, and I have a teacher in my life, and she taught me that this is called spiraling the information. And when you spiral the information, what you're doing is you are repeating the information. And one of the things that the big book uses is this repetition to teach us. And on page six of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in Bill's story, it says, and I quote, now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. So go back to page 41. It says the same thing exactly. Bill Wilson went into the cafe to telephone. He had a drink. He had been on a dry spell. He had sworn oaths to God in front of Lois. And if you go to Stepping Stones or you go to, you know, you know anything about Bill Wilson, they had a family Bible. And Bill and Lois never had children. But Bill and Lois would write in the family Bible they're I'm, like around New Year's, I'm not going to drink this year, Lo, I love you more than I love liquor, and I love you so much. And Lois would say, I'm not going to do whatever it is that she was going to do. He was on a dry spell. He goes in there to make a phone call. Now, they didn't have a phone at the men's clothing store. They didn't have a phone at the gas station. They didn't have a phone at the barbershop or the laundromat. But Yutso has got to go into the cafe to make a telephone call. He was already setting himself up, right? What's he doing in a cafe? They'll be like me going to Dunkin' Donuts to get in out of the rain. I can't, you know, I can't get in out of the rain at the optometrist's office. I can't get it, you know, at the barbershop. What am I going to Dunkin' Donuts to get out of the rain? That, see, it doesn't, just doesn't make any sense. So here we have the same thing repeated. There's other areas. I don't have the time to, to go into them. There are other areas of the book where this same kind of thing is repeated. And here he says, I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, dash, I would drink again. Now, this is the understatement of the year. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I have not eaten compulsively in over 21 and a half years. It's been 21 and a half years since December the 29th, 1998, when I put down the food, hopefully for the final time. But that doesn't guarantee me anything. Doing conventions and being a circuit speaker is no guarantee of anything. I could sit here and talk to you and talk to you and talk to you. And if I'm not in the right frame of mind, if I'm not in right fit spiritual condition, I can go right to a candy store, right to a bakery or, or a donut shop, and I can, you know, go binge my brains out. But what I'm looking at here is it says, 
they prophesize that if I have a mind like that, I'm going to eat again. You bet your bippy I'm going to eat again because that's what we do. I don't have to eat that way as long as what? As long as I go to meetings, that's part of it. As long as I lose weight, that's part of it. Losing weight is no guarantee of anything. It's just losing weight. And that's great. That's fantastic. As long as what? As long as I remain in fit spiritual condition. If I remain in fit spiritual condition, if I remain in fit spiritual condition, I do not have to put that excess food in my mouth ever again. Let me repeat that. As long as I'm in fit spiritual condition, I never, ever, ever have to put that food in my mouth again. But I have to work at it, and I have to do the program, and I have to do whatever it is I need to do. That's the key. I have to take action. Top of 42. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Like it's a day with a Y in it. It's a month with a vowel in it. It's raining outside. It's not raining outside. It's sunny. It's night. Whatever that may be, that's gonna be the reason why I'm drinking. I have eaten railroad cars full of Doritos to kill the shame and horrible remorse of eating railroad cars full of Doritos. Well, that just, that did happen and more for what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. What you know about caloric intake, I, I can't, I don't have time to scroll through here or to see who's here and who's not here. I'm thinking about what I'm gonna say. I'm thinking about how I can best present this information to you. I'm thinking about things other than scrolling through here. But I bet you that if I scrolled through here and picked some of you out at random, there are some of you that I would pick out that have as much knowledge of nutrition as most professional nutritionists. I would be willing to bet you that if you've been around here for a while, you have a knowledge of caloric intake and caloric content and starch and carb and all this stuff that would rival a professor, would rival anybody. Yet that knowledge is not going to keep you safe. And once again, losing weight, somebody's unmuted. Losing weight is absolutely no guarantee that you will not eat again. Losing weight is great, but it's not a cure for this disease. Once you get down to that normal weight, or once you get to a weight that you're comfortable with, that is absolutely no indication that you are in recovery. All that is, is a physical change. That's all that is. The change must come from within, and it must be a, a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Without that spiritual awakening, we are biologically predetermined to eat ourselves to death. We have been biologically predetermined to eat to a point 
where we will become immobilized. We will, we will lose our, we will lose our, uh, our, our life to motion as we start to get sedentary, as we can't, we can't walk, we can't stand, we can't go places. The disease now starts getting worse and worse and worse. And that's why you'll hear some of us use language like, uh-oh, he's circling the drain. Uh-oh, she's circling the drain. And I don't ever want to say that about any of you. I just don't. It would break my heart. And I hope to God you never have to say it about me. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. An alcoholic mind is different from the mind of a normal person. I have a friend of mine. He lives in Chicago. He actually lives western suburb of Chicago. And he has a daughter. And his daughter is highly and acutely allergic to peanuts. <laughs> and she, when she ingests peanuts, she has a throat that constricts to the, like a pin. And she has to have a, an EpiPen jabbed into her and the, and the medicine injected into her or she'll die. And once she has this medicine injected into her, she's fine. Now, she does not have a mind that says, I'm allergic to peanuts. Maybe if I get them dry roasted, I'll be okay. Maybe if I get them in the shell salted, I'll be okay. Or maybe I'll try them in the shell unsalted. She doesn't look for different ways to eat peanuts. She stays away from peanuts because the only area that peanuts damage her is physically. Her mind is not a mind that focuses in on you know, I'm going to just keep trying different kinds of peanuts until I hit on the kind of peanut that will allow me to eat peanuts and not have this allergic reaction. She stays away from peanuts and does not need to go to Peanuts Anonymous. But with an alcoholic mind, we are going to continue to go back and back and back and back. And if you're new to this, what, what I'm doing here, we go very slowly. But when I see things that need explanation, we're going to dive into them. Because this alcoholic mind is something we have for food. And unless we are in fit spiritual condition, we will eat ourselves to death. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. Now let's take a look at that sentence. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. This is very, very important. Your willpower, my willpower is not going to stand up to the screaming of my brain when my brain sees Chips Ahoy cookies, my brain locks in like a laser beam on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly. Don't we all like instant gratification? Yes, we do. That Chips Ahoy cookie will provide me with instant gratification, and my mind knows that. But I will not be able to conjure up in my mind what those cookies have done to me. 
that I went on my first date when I was 35 years of age, that by the time I was 17 years old, I was 300 pounds, that doctors have been telling my mother and me and my father that I am going to die very soon from the time I was about 10 years old. My brain is not gonna conjure up all the times I could not get in a car. My brain is not gonna remind me of all the times I couldn't get out of a car. This t-shirt that I'm wearing right now, this t-shirt that I am wearing right now is a normal size garment. I did not have to go to the big and tall store. I did not have to pay nine times the amount of money for a t-shirt that a normal person pays. This band on my watch, this band on my watch is normal size. I did not have to special order a band for my watch because my wrist is so big that a normal band doesn't cover it. I am able to go into a store right now. I won't, I'll finish what we're doing. I am able to go into a store right now and buy a pair of pants that will fit me and that they'll be okay. When I used to travel, when I was a 5X, a 6X, a 7X, and I would go someplace, it was very frightening because if I ripped my pants, or I stained my pants, where was I gonna go to get clothing? I lived in Chicago, the second largest city in the country. There were big and tall stores that couldn't fit me. I had to go to specialized big and tall, and more often than not, if they didn't go up to a 70, 76, 80 inch waist, I couldn't buy clothes there, because that's how big I was. So when you see this sentence, this is key. This is very, very key. It says here, I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. And what is the mental blank spot? The mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. I will forget the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Saturday nights where my date was Little Debbie and Sara Lee. I will forget the hundreds and hundreds of dances and weddings and bar mitzvahs that I sat out and, and ate at home because I couldn't get clothes or I was embarrassed to go there. I was ashamed of who I was. I was ashamed of what I looked like. I was ashamed of myself and I wanted to die a lot more than I wanted to live. I will forget that. I, have, it, it, I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Any vestige that I am holding on to, that I can beat this game by myself without God's help, without doing service, without sponsoring, without going to meetings, without being max, of maximum service to God and the people about me, I'm kidding myself. I am kidding myself. I am not gonna be able to do that. I do not have the amount of willpower to do that. 
I have willpower for other things. I take an enormous amount of rejection because I sell on the phone. I take an enormous amount of strength to get through my life, through my day. I have a child It lives in Brooklyn, New York. She doesn't speak to me. She hasn't spoken to me in many years. There's a hole in my heart because of that. It hurts. I have to go through the day knowing I'm not going to hear from her, knowing I don't know her anymore, knowing she doesn't know me anymore. That's very, very painful. That's very, very painful. But you know what? I have to keep serving God. And we all have these things. We all have these challenges. And the reason I'm bringing them up is not so you'll sit around and feel sorry for me. I am bringing these things up so you understand you are not the only one that has these challenges. You are not the only one with problems. You are not the only one where people and life do not go the way you want them to go. That is not the case. That is not what we're doing here. This is not, there's nothing in this book that says from this point forward, life will be a fairy tale. That when you get dressed in the morning, there'll be music playing and little birds will come and help you dress and, and you'll look just like Cinderella and you'll get into your pumpkin and it will take you where you want to go. There's nothing in this book that says that. It says just the opposite, that you're going to live and you're, we're not going to be able to utilize food as a solution to our problem anymore. We're going to use God. We're going to go to the steps. And every day that I'm lucky enough to wake up, yes, I'm older, things are changing, and the disease got worse. No question about it. However, there's two doors in front of me. Every day I wake up, there's two doors in front of me. One door says eat the food, and one door says work the steps. And those are the only two choices. There is no third choice. There's no third choice. Work the steps or eat the food. Those are the only two choices we have. Page 42, we're gonna now talk about step number one. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and then asked me if I thought myself alcoholic, and if I were really licked this time. And if you're not licked this time, there's no sense wasting time with you. If you are licked, we're ready to help you. We're ready to go to the mat for you. There's people on this line that can sponsor like the Dickens. They know every nook and cranny. They can help you. But if you're not licked and you're not ready, there's not a one of us that knows how to help you. We're going to just stay out of your way. We're going to stay out of your way. I had to, uh, they asked me if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. In other words, have you taken step one? I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. Now let's talk about that for just a few minutes. What I've done with food is a hopeless condition. I do not have anything in my life that tells me that I'm a normal eater. There is nothing in my life that would suggest 
that I have a normal relationship with food. Nothing. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself, step two. Do you see how simple the working of the steps can be? They confronted him and they asked him, does he think he's an alcoholic and is he really licked this time? Step one. I know how to say step one in Italian because I did the thing for the Italy, the Rimini Italy group. Step one in Italian for anybody keeping score is passo prima. That's step number one. But anyway, that aside, so that's step one. All you need, all step one and two is, is a conclusion of the mind. And then they said, the process, this process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. And once you've accepted this fact that you need God's help and that there's nothing inside of you that's going to allow you to do this job by yourself, you need God's help. That's step two. You don't need lengthy things. I mean, yes, we go through the chapters. Absolutely, we do. But there doesn't have to be a big protracted period of time. There's no reason for it. There's no reason for it at all whatsoever. Then they outline the spiritual answer. What's the spiritual answer? Four through 12. And, pro and the program of, I'm sorry, the spiritual answer is the steps and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. So they're telling him about the steps. They're telling him about the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. They're not going into these lengthy, you know, lengthy situations here. Though I had only been a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, step three, what is step three? Step three is the formal terms of surrender. And step three means I'm going to do four through 12 every day for the rest of my life. That's all step three is. Step three shouldn't take more than 30 seconds to read the prayer on page 63. That's how long step three should take. What is step three? How do you work step three? You work step three by coming to the understanding in your heart that you are a compulsive overeater, that you are powerless over food, your life's unmanageable, and that you've come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. And how do you do step three? You say, I'm going to do four through 12 every day for the rest of my life. You've done the first three steps. If you've successfully done the third step, you're walking around doing the fourth step. How do you know if you've taken step three? You know you've taken step three when you are doing step four. <laughs> Not until then. So you hear people say, I'm doing the one, two, three waltz, one, two, three waltz. There's no such thing as the one, two, three waltz. If you've really done three, you're going to do four through 12. There's no such thing. 
I'm on page 42 to the bottom. I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved as in fact it proved to be. So he has taken steps one, two, and three with these guys. Now he's ready to go and do four. Bottom of 42, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles, what are the spiritual principles? The spiritual principles are the steps of OA. You hear people go, oh, the principle of one is honesty and the principle of two is hope. And Bill Wilson didn't know about any of that. He just was taught in writing class. You don't keep using the same word, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. You don't keep using the same word. So sometimes he calls them principles. Sometimes he calls them steps. Silkworth calls them rules. You know, he calls them different things would solve all my problems. And that's all throughout the book, that these steps will solve all my problems. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying, and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. Boy, I'll tell you, I've never been this useful. I've never been this happy. I've never been this close to God. I think this is the greatest way of life imaginable. There is nothing about this way of life that is at all horrible. Nothing. But the food is a nightmare. The food is a freaking nightmare. More satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have ever, I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. I do not want to go back into the food. I do not want to go back into the disease. I do not want to live that way anymore. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to live that way. And I sure as hell don't want to eat that way. That is not what I want to do. But me wanting not to do it <clears throat> is not going to help me. Hold on one second. The only thing that's going to guarantee that I won't go back into that way of life is the continual working of the steps. And if I stop working the steps, I will eat until I'm dead. I want to make that very, very clear. I am biologically predetermined to eat myself to death. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. I'm on age 43. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Now, a lot of you don't know what a ringer is. You're too young. But a ringer is part of an old-fashioned wash machine. And my mother would wring out the clothes and she put the shirts in there and wring it out and all the water that could go out of it would go out of it. But if you caught your hand in there, oh, it was very, very painful. It would do a number on you. So keep your hands away from the wringer. Thank God we don't wash our clothes like that anymore. But a lot of you don't know what that is because you're too young. And so that's fine. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. And that's just a son of a bee. Why is it that we come to OA as a last resort? We often say we are the last house on the block. 
And the reason that we say that we are the last house on the block is because we have to go try everything. There are people here this morning, you've had the urine of pregnant women shot up your keister, you've been hypnotized, you've had pills, some of you have had surgeries, you've been analyzed, you've been whatever you've been, you've gone here, you've gone there in search of an answer to this. But for some reason, you came into OA 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, two weeks ago, and you walked out when you heard that God word, or you walked out when you heard that there was actually work that you were going to have to do. And we were looking for that magical diet. We were looking for that magical pill. We were looking for that magical surgery that was going to alleviate us. There's a person on the line today. I don't know if she's still on the line. She has not had bariatric surgery once. She has had bariatric surgery twice. I, no, I'm not making that up. She's had bariatric surgery two times. She still has to work the steps. She's still on the vision more, uh, meetings in the morning. She's with us today. And the reason? Because those surgeries didn't do anything for her brain. Those surgeries didn't change her thinking, didn't change her mind. And she still has the mind of a chronic compulsive overeater. What does chronic mean? It means recurring regularly, frequently. Chronic just means you do it all the time. Last paragraph of the chapter. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. This is the statement of Percy Pollock from Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Bellevue is a very, very world-renowned hospital. It's in New York, it's in Manhattan, I believe. And the guy's name was Percy Pollock, who did this statement. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, he heard the stories of Bill Wilson. He heard the stories of Fitz Mayo. And uh, Hank couldn't make it that, but he heard Fitz Mayo and he heard Bill Wilson. There's no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Now, in the doctor's opinion, written by Silkworth, not Percy Pollock, Dr. William D. Silkworth, two different times in that, in that opinion, he confesses his powerlessness over the alcoholic. So in other words, we are powerless over food, but the doctor is powerless over the compulsive overeater. The doctor cannot help you. We have gone to the medical profession and we have dumped this, 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 truckload of garbage at their door. And we have said to the medical profession, cure us and help us. And they can't. They can't. They've tried. They cannot do it. My cardiologist, my cardiologist is in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he's a good guy. I like him. When he moved his office, I said, you know, you're not right at 
my corner here anymore. So, you know, I should drop you, young man, but I won't because I like you. But I bring away literature when I go twice a year. I go every six months to the cardiologist. I have chronic AFib, and he has to keep an eye on me with diabetes. My mother was a diabetic, so he has to keep an eye on me. And I bring away literature. And he laughs. He thinks it's the stupidest endeavor in the world for me to bring that stuff. Why does he think it's stupid? Because he knows that these people are going to come into his office at 350 pounds in January. And he's, he's going to say something to them or not. And they're going to come back even heavier next time and heavier the time after that and heavier the time after that. And then they'll be dead. This is what he tells me all the time. I says, I got to keep trying. I got to keep trying. If I can help one person, that's all the, that, that's, that's what I'm looking for is one, uno. That's all I care about is to help one person. But he, he's very skeptical when it comes to that stuff. Very, very skeptical. But we are hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. See, this is the doctor's talking. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have re profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there's virtually no other solution. There is no other solution. If you are a compulsive overeater like me, and you are, a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety, there is nothing else for you to do but work the steps. Last paragraph of the chapter, and we'll open it to questions and answers. Once more, see he's told us this lots of different times during the first four, three chapters of the book and the doctor's opinion. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, which I am not familiar, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And how do we tap that? by getting out of ourselves, helping others, and being of service and working the steps. You will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You will get this program by transmitting spiritual information. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. It is an action program. Do we need it? Yes. Do we want it? Yes. But we have to do it. There are people that want this program, that need this program, that go to meetings, and they, they may give a, a, an homage to the steps, but they're really not delving into it. We have to delve into it and work it as if our life depends upon it, because indeed it does. Now, what, we're, what I'm going to do now is I am going to um, turn this back over. And I don't know who's going to run.